So Laurel and I were watching a video the other evening, and uh, one of the people on it was a comedian named uh, Ricky Gervais. I don't know him, Gervais, I'm probably saying his name wrong. I don't know him, and I'm not here to judge him, but what I want to do is I want to ask you to join me in thinking about something he says. Evidently, uh, Ricky doesn't pray, um, and he lets people know, I don't pray. It's part of his routine. It's part of his, the things that, that he says. In fact, Googling around, I found a, a webpage that has a lot of his irreligious tweets on it, uh, tweets about God. None of them are positive regarding God. And he happened to mention that people think that he's arrogant because he doesn't pray. Ah, yeah, Ricky, he feels like he doesn't need God. He doesn't even pray because he can do it. How arrogant can you be? And then Ricky said this. He said, what could be more arrogant to praying to the God who didn't stop the Holocaust thinking he'll help you find your car keys. Huh. How do you react to that? Some people get angry when they hear that because they really don't know how to answer that. Oh, man, he's got a point. That makes me mad. Those atheists doing that stuff. I just can't stand atheists. You know, some people become that kind, have that kind of response. Other people, maybe they get kind of sad. Like they think, that's just sad that he feels that way. And I kind of fall into that camp myself. I'm I'm sad because Ricky doesn't understand something that most of us who are sitting here, standing here before you today, understand. Something else when I think about this kind of statement, I I wonder what led Ricky to say that? What led him to think that way in the first place? Because generally speaking, people don't get up in the morning and just say, you know what? (laughs) I just happen to think, God didn't answer the prayers of the Holocaust. What makes me think he'll answer mine? I'm just going to quit praying. That probably isn't how he came to that conclusion. In fact, that kind of thought generally comes from disillusionment. That maybe Ricky had prayed about something and it didn't happen, or maybe he'd seen people who prayed about things and God didn't answer their prayers. And so that kind of statement often comes from a heart that is disappointed and disillusioned with God. How do I know that? (laughs) Because I felt that way. And chances are you have felt that way as well because all of us face disappointment and disillusionment in life, even with God. So my question is, where do you go when you struggle spiritually? Where do you go when you feel disillusioned? Probably you go to some Christian friends. I do that. Send a buddy a text and say, we need to have coffee. He says, I don't like coffee. And I say, it's not about the coffee, right? Or, or maybe you go to a Christian leader. I do that. Or maybe you go to God in prayer. I do that. Maybe you go to Scripture. And you can go to a lot of places in Scripture to work through spiritual disappointment. You might go to John 14, where Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. You might go to the 23rd Psalm and hear God say, even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't fear because I am with you. And when you're dealing with that disillusionment, there are a lot of places in Scripture that you can go. You can go to the book of Revelation. (laughs) The book of Revelation? Yeah. Now, some of you who know me, when you hear this next sentence, you might pass out. So the person next to you, you know, hold your hand so that they can kind of slap it as you come back to consciousness because it might astonish you to hear this next sentence. This is the first sermon in a series on the book of Revelation. Whoever thought Pastor Steve would preach out of Revelation? I sure didn't. And I've been with much consternation and prayer 
asking God, where do you want me to go with my next sermon series? And I believe this is where he wants me to go. Because this question, where do you go when you feel disillusioned, disappointment, persecuted, like life is futile? This is a question that John was answering when he wrote those 22 chapters in the last book of the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Revelation. We'll be in the first chapter of it. It's the last book in the Bible. You're in the first chapter. As always, there is a Bible app event for this message, so you'll be able to follow along. And I really encourage you to do so because we're going to read every verse of this chapter, some of them more than once, and I'd like you to be looking at them if you could. This book is written by a man named John. He's John the Apostle. He is his writing about what God has for him to write. As he's writing, as these events happen, he happened to be on an island. That's what's pictured on the screen before you. That's the island of Patmos. And at first you might say, oh boy, I would love to be there. That looks like a great place to be. But notice, there's not a palm tree around. And, and all there is is barren scrub grass. And he was there because he was being punished. He was exiled there. They were tired of him talking about Jesus. And so they sent him there to get him to shut up. And think about that for a minute. The people he loved, the people he loved who happened to be scattered around in seven different churches, they were remote from him because he had been exiled by political and religious powers. It would kind of be for John and for those people as though he was pastoring maybe half a dozen churches in a country that was very anti-Christianity. And they finally said, we're sending you to Siberia, buddy. And their leader, their shepherd, gets sent to Siberia, and those seven churches are left without a shepherd. Those seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That is who Paul, I'm sorry, that is who John is writing to. And he wants to help them as they struggle. And they do struggle, (laughs) I'm reading a book by Matthew Emerson as I'm preparing for this. It's called From the Cross or Between the Cross and the Throne about the book of Revelation. Let me just read half a dozen sentences from this book to you. See if they sound, if they they kind of resonate with you. These churches were experiencing repeated persecution by a number of different groups. They were not only persecuted by the government, but by false teachers who constantly attempted to infiltrate their congregations. The Jews who had rejected Christ also rejected them. In addition, they were immersed in a Greco-Roman culture which exhibited different morals and encouraged alternative religious beliefs. Thus, the Christians from these seven churches were continually tempted by false teaching, pleasure-seeking, and persecution to stray from Christ and his teaching. They were confronted with the choice between the power of God and the power of Satan, manifested in doctrinal, social, and political ways. John had a specific message for this audience. Remain faithful to the almighty triune God until the end. Now, as I read that, you might have kind of picked up on the reality that we're a lot like those churches. I mean, we can take what Emerson said there and we can rephrase it and we can say, today's Christians experience things that cause them to want to give up. We are immersed in godless culture, which has different morals and pushes alternative beliefs and the accompanying lifestyles, we are continually confronted with false teaching, temptation to make seeking pleasure the objective of our existence, and the pressure to turn away from biblical teaching, to turn from Christ himself. Whether we know it or not, we are confronted with a choice between the power of God and the power of Satan. And this shows up in what we believe and how we treat our fellow human beings and even how we vote. 
God has a specific message for us. It is the same message. It is the same message as he instructed John to give the Christians who were given the book of Revelation. Remain faithful to the almighty triune God until the end. That is the message of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is saying, remain faithful no matter what the circumstances to the triune God until the very end. It's a message for those seven churches. And it's a message for us when we live in a world that is not friendly toward Christians. It's a message for us when life isn't working out the way we planned. It's a message for us when we struggle with asking, how in the world can I say Christ is Lord when I see what's around us? We ask a lot of questions, and the book of Revelation kind of works to address questions that every Christian asks. (laughs) And I've often discovered that sometimes we ask the wrong questions. I've discovered that we ask why questions, why God, and that those are actually the wrong questions to ask. Now hear me, I'm not saying it's bad to ask why questions. It's natural to ask why questions. But I don't think they're the right questions if you want, if you want to get something worthwhile in return. I feel like the why question turns out to be kind of pointless, practically speaking. But we still ask. If Jesus is Lord, then why does evil prevail? In fact, why does evil reign? Why, God? And if Jesus is Lord, why are Christians persecuted? Why, God? And if Jesus is Lord, why am I struggling the way I'm struggling? Why, God? And all of those are why, why, why questions. And I think these questions are the wrong questions because the why doesn't really fix it. Even if it were answered, it would not satisfy your soul. I want you to imagine for a moment. I want you to imagine the most painful thing you have experienced. Can you go back to that? I know it's hard. For some of you, it's very hard. I want you to think of that. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe the loss of a child. Maybe the most painful thing that you ever experienced was that time you were violated. (laughs) And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or maybe the most painful thing you experienced was a relationship that failed. And you put all your hope in that. And it still hurts when you think about it today. Whatever it is, imagine that pain. And now imagine that you've got the opportunity to sit across the table from God and ask him why. Why, God, did you let that happen to me? And imagine that he would answer. Well, Steve, I let that happen to you so that others would see your suffering and take warning. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Really, God? (sighs) I don't know whether to be honored or angry. And that honestly doesn't take away my pain. It still hurts, just like it hurt before we sat down together, God. Yeah, I know. Because the why question is really the wrong question to, to ask. And honestly... I feel like we want to ask the why question sometimes just so we can give God a piece of our mind. (laughs) Yeah, I'll talk more about that later. The book of Revelation doesn't talk about the why question, why this suffering is happening. In fact, so far as I can see, the only place in the Bible that attempts to address the why question in a real thorough way is Genesis 3. And once he's done with that, God says, there, I told you why. Now let's move forward. The sin, the fall, 
of humankind. What Revelation does do is help us consider a deeper kind of question. And that question is a how question that is more meaningful and full of potential. How can anyone say Jesus is Lord when I can't see anything but evil? How can anyone say Jesus is Lord when Christians are persecuted? Just go back to that, how can anyone say Jesus is Lord when everything I see is evil? And consider how how tempted you are to despair when you look at the news feed on your smartphone. (laughs) Wow, racism, hatred, murder, bombings, killings, you name it. Man, how can anyone say Jesus is Lord when I can't see anything but evil? And how can anyone say Jesus is Lord when his very own church is persecuted like it is? You probably know some of the numbers, right? Earlier this year, one report indicated Christian persecution around the globe. And I'm not talking about someone telling you you can't say Merry Christmas. That is not persecution. We need to get over that. We're baited by the media when we bite on that. But one report says that Christian persecution, real persecution, is at such a level that it should be thought of as genocide. We're trying to wipe out a whole race inside of this planet of ours. It was a foreign secretary of the United Kingdom who said that governments are watching that and doing nothing about it. And it was Bishop, the Bishop of Truro who said that Christianity could very well be wiped out in parts of the Middle East because believers are either being killed or being forced to leave. (laughs) How can anyone say Jesus is Lord when Christians are persecuted like that? Do you see these how questions are real questions? They're genuine questions. How can anyone say Jesus is Lord when I'm just struggling with my life, with marriages that are failing, maybe your own or maybe someone you love, someone in your family, families that are fractured, with sickness and that C word, cancer, aging issues, mental illness, addiction, health-related expenses. How can anyone say Jesus is Lord when I'm just struggling to make it in life? I believe the book of Revelation was written to answer those very kinds of questions. John is writing to Christians spread across Turkey, the western part of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and they are struggling with that. I know they're struggling with it because when you read the book of Revelation, if you think about it, it's written to answer the question, how can I say Jesus is Lord? Here's how, is what the book of Revelation says. So let's take a look at the text. Remember, I ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation 1. We are gonna read a lot of scripture. So follow along as I read here. I want to show you that Jesus has something to say to us, and that's in the first two verses of the book. It says, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw that is the work of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is information that Jesus is giving because he wants to share it with his servants. And by the way, he's not writing to satisfy their curiosity. He's not writing this to scratch some kind of theological itch they have. Like, I'm always wondering about this. They did not send an email to the Isle of Patmos to John to say, do you think you could do a study on the end times? That sounds pretty interesting. That is not why he's writing. 
He's writing this because he's addressing the question, how can you say Jesus is Lord when the world is going to Hades in a handbasket? How can we believe that is a question that is at hand. And interestingly, he tells us that he's writing this to bless his reader. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written because the time is near. Wow, I get a blessing just for reading this to you today. And you get a blessing just for hearing it. How? Because it's answering the how question. And that's the blessing. Uh, Look at those last four words in verse three. Did you see them? The time is near. Wow, that causes a lot of confusion. In fact, I bought a commentary one time. It was recommended by a different author that I was reading, a commentary on the book of Revelation. And when he got to this part of the text, the commentator says, how would John possibly write the end is near when 2,000 years later, it still hasn't happened? The answer to this is John was wrong. John thought the end was near, but he was wrong. Anyone want to guess where that commentary is now? Last I saw it, it was in a trash can beside my desk. I'm sure it's in a dumpster, or not a dumpster, in a landfill somewhere now. Because John isn't wrong. John is writing the Bible, and the Bible isn't wrong. It's the word of God. But the question is still there. What is John talking about? How are we to understand that? So let me just go down this rabbit trail for a minute, and we'll come right back. As John writes prophecy, the sequence of events don't seem to be real important to him. You might say, well, I think they're important to him. Well, when you go to chapters 17, 18, and 19, John seems to have these events occurring all at the same time. Satan falls from heaven. Christ is born. The, the, the dragon pursues him. He is snatched up. And the end comes. It seems it all happens at the same time. What I understand is John doesn't really want to spell out the times and the sequence and all that sort of thing that we're so fascinated by. You know why? Because John is trying to tell you how you can say Christ is Lord in the midst of a world that tells you otherwise. And so when he says the end is near, he's saying you can believe this is actually going to happen as though we're right around the corner. Pay attention. This is real stuff that we're talking about. It's going to happen. And as we look at the text, as we come back to it, we say, really, John is is writing to lift our eyes toward Jesus. In in verse four, at the beginning, he begins like every first century email would have with his name. John, and who's he writing to? To the seven churches of the province of Asia. And then he talks about this triune God. He says, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is a faithful witness, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings of earth. Wow, there's a lot to talk about there, right? I mean, if you're reading that, probably one of the first things you're thinking of, who are these seven spirits, and are they connected with those seven churches that John is writing to? And there are a lot of theories on that, and and you know what my answer is going to be? No one knows. No one knows for sure. But here's what we do know. Don't miss what you do know by being distracted by what you don't know. Number one, you know that God is on the throne and no one else is. And and, and you know that Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, which means there are more to come. We will be resurrected with him. 
And we know that Jesus is a ruler of the kings of the earth. That no matter what it looks like, Jesus is a ruler of the kings of the earth. Do you see that John is answering this question? How can I say Jesus is Lord? That's how. By seeing what John is wanting you to see, what Jesus wants you to see. And as we pick up in the middle of verse 5, John gives glory to God by writing to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us into a kingdom of priests to serve God, his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Huh. In a book where John wants to help us when we struggle with our faith, John speaks about the blood of Christ because John wants us to remember the cross. He wants us to remember the cross. I mean, that might be the most important verse in the chapter, maybe the book. Let me read it again, starting in the middle of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is the first of many times that John will refer to the blood of Christ. It is the first of many times that he will tell you of the blood of the Lamb. It is the first of many times that he will look to the Lamb who was slain. Constantly, as John is trying to answer the question of how can we say Christ is Lord, constantly he's pointing to Christ and his death on the cross. He's always taking you to the cross. The old timers, when I was a New Alliance pastor, used to say four words over and over to me. Preach, it's three words, bad math. Here it is, ready? Preach the cross. That's what John is doing. Pointing you to the cross over and over and over again. Because it is a cross by which he has freed you from your sin. It is his blood by which he has redeemed you. And Jesus wants you to look at the cross because because of the cross, we'll be vindicated. I don't like that term vindicated, but it's all I got. I looked and looked and looked for a better word. I can't find one. Maybe you'll think of one. Because of the cross, we'll be vindicated. If you make it your business to let people know that you love Jesus, you will encounter people that don't get it and don't like it. As a Christian, you've probably been left out of things because you're a Christian. And as a believer, you've probably been criticized for your faith because you're a believer. And, and as a Christ follower, you might have been given some grief. Ah, you have to go to church because you're too good to come with us. Huh, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. She doesn't party. She's too good to party with us, right? Oh, your prayers did a lot of good, honey. We still don't have money to pay the mortgage. <laughs> you see, when that happens, you're often tempted to ask, how can I say Jesus is Lord? And I feel like verse 7 kind of answers that. It, it tells us not to worry about those who belittle your Christian faith. Look at verse 7. Read it with me. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Vindication. Vindication. The believers in the seven churches know what persecution means better than you and I know what persecution means. And my guess is it's shaking their faith. Where is this appearance we, we've been told about? John is on another island and what is going to happen to us? And how embarrassing will it be if they find out that the very thing they have placed their entire life in was a mockery, was a sham, wasn't real? That would be so sad to find that out. But that is not what is happening. The text says Jesus is coming back just as he promised and everyone will see him, even his enemies who pierced him. 
And if anyone's going to mourn, (laughs) it won't be those who have received him as their savior. It will be those who refused him. How can you say Jesus is Lord? That's how. That's how. John wants us to know because of the cross, Jesus will come through. He will prevail. And that's why he gave John the revelation. He hadn't forgotten John. Look look at verse 9. John knows that he is one who is suffering. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he's on this island in exile. And listen to this. Jesus takes him by surprise. Look at verse 10. It says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. So he's worshiping. And he says, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, you've probably heard that so many times, it's not weird to you. That's really weird. Why does he hear a voice behind him? I mean, if he's worshiping God, why does he even take the time to pen, the voice was behind me? And I think it's because he wants us to know Jesus is the initiator here. John doesn't say, so it was on a Lord's Day and I was trying to track down Jesus and I heard him in front of me as I was pursuing him. This is all Jesus doing this. Jesus has not forgotten John. Jesus takes John by surprise. John isn't tracking him down to get answers to the why question. Jesus is showing up to give him the how question. Those answers. And Jesus wants us to know that he hasn't lost his edge, so he gives a lot of data starting in verse 12. Follow along from verse 12 to 19 as I read this. John is speaking. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands, someone who looked like the Son of Man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His hair and his head were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes was like blazing fire. And his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out from his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Later. How can you say Jesus is Lord? That's how. That's how. Jesus has not lost his edge. He is Lord. And he wants you to know that his attention is forever focused on you, on the redeemed ones. Those who approach the Bible with honesty, look at those seven churches and say, yeah, that's several literal, that's seven literal cities in which there were churches in the first century. In the region of Asia Minor, we think of it as modern day Turkey. But the identity of these seven spirits, seven stars, seven lampstands. (laughs) Not everyone agrees on that. But Jesus kind of helps us out in verse 20. He says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. Remember where the seven stars are? In his right hand. And the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And those seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here's what I want you to make of that. The things that are happening 
in your life on earth are before the throne of God. Just as those lampstands were before the throne of God, the things happening in your life are before the throne of God. And as you struggle in your life, as you're asking those how questions, he holds you in his right hand. (laughs) Just as he held the seven stars in his right hand. And because of the cross, his redeemed ones are ever before him. How can I say Christ is Lord? That's how. How can you do it personally? I mean, how can you say Christ is Lord? What can I do to be better at this, Pastor Steve? Let me make a couple suggestions. First, let me suggest this. (laughs) Start by asking the right question. Just let go of the why question. It is not going to satisfy your heart. The how question really starts with a measure of truth. How can I say Jesus is Lord? It's right in the sentence. It's right in the question. And I say, I say it because I know it's the truth. That's a good place to start with a desire to know the truth. And the how question starts with God himself. Did you ever notice that the why question kind of focuses on me? Why is this happening to me? And if I'm real honest, I'm saying instead of happening to them, right? The why question in my life is very egocentric, very self-centered. But the how question focuses on God. I want to say Jesus is Lord. I like saying Jesus is Lord. I just need to know how to do that. God, show me how to do that. The why question feels a little dishonest, but the how question starts with honesty. When I say dishonest, let me just say this thoroughly. Whenever uh, I have this thought in my head, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why he let let that happen. (laughs) Honestly, in my head, I'm saying, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God that was a stupid idea. (laughs) That's the why question for you, right? But the how question, the how question says, God, I just want to know how to live well through this difficulty. Show me how. And when you ask him that question, he points you at the cross. When you ask him, when you're struggling, he does have something to say to you. He lifts your eyes toward Jesus and he points you at the cross because of the cross, you will be vindicated for your faith. And because of the cross, you know Jesus is going to come through. Death could not hold him down. And because of the cross, his attention is on you his redeemed one. He holds you in his right hand like a star. You are ever before him. Couples who are standing beside the ashes of their home while the fire company is rolling up the hoses and getting ready to leave. I have stood with them. The newly widowed returning to an empty house I have walked with them. Parents who have laid to rest what a parent should never have to lay to rest. I have wept with them. And I have learned to say something that is incredibly counterintuitive. It does not seem like it's the right thing to say. In fact, you might think I would get smacked for saying this in that context but it's the right thing to say. 
because Jesus is Lord, it is going to be all right. It's my wife who taught me to say that. I don't know what we were going through. I, I just remember the moment that we're standing in the kitchen and we were revisiting how we handled a crisis in our life and how we could have handled it better. And she said these words to me. It was just a decade or so ago. She said, Steve, you know, I'll tell you what I needed. I was scared. I was stressed out. Maybe she was having trouble believing in the good. And I just needed you to hold me and say, it's going to be all right. Really? That's what you needed. That's what she needs. And so I say it. Not just to her. And it's not just I who say it. And it's not just you who hears it. Jesus says it to seven churches in western Turkey 2,000 years ago who were facing great trouble and wondering, how can I say Jesus is Lord? And he says it to you as well. And I say it. Because Jesus is Lord, it's going to be all right. I say it by faith because I trust that it's true. I say it because Jesus says it. That's what he's saying throughout this entire passage. And I say it just because it is true. And I believe it. How do you say Jesus is Lord? That's how. Let me pray for you that you would be able to say it as well. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father in heaven, as we stand here, different ones of us are in different places. Sometimes the sun is shining in our life and we are filled with joy. And so we hear a message like this and we're like, that's good to know. I'll file that for when I need it. So help us do that. Help us just put that in that filing cabinet for, for the time that we're wondering, how can I say Jesus is Lord? Help us to come back to this text of Revelation 1 and say, oh, that's how. Others of us, it doesn't feel like the sun is shining. Maybe we're going through a difficult time. You know what that is. I pray that you will help them to see your majesty and your glory and your sovereignty and your great love for them. Those who are gathered here in this congregation who have suffered great grief and great loss, I pray, Father, that they would know that they are held in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. That you hold their hearts that their lives and their pain and their sorrow and their questions and their struggles are right before you. And they see that. And help them to trust you that because Jesus is Lord, it's going to be all right. We pray this with a, a sense of confidence that you answer these kinds of prayers. Because Jesus, you are Lord. Amen. Amen.